Good morning, everyone. Would you please stand as we have our responsive reading? This morning we will conclude with uh, the second half of Psalm 33. You should find that on your pew Bibles on page 569. We read the first half last week. This week we'll conclude verses 12 through 22. I'll begin with verse 12, congregation, the odd number verses. So Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of the devil, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not um, delivered by great strength. A horse is false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope for his loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let, Let our loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according to the world in you. Amen. Please be seated. So looking at this psalm last week, the beginning part of it is how um, the psalm writer was rejoicing in the Lord and all that he has done for them and the way that he protects them. And it's interesting how we start this week with verse 12 where it is, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And here we're having uh, our elections this week and, and our everybody will be out looking to vote and you know, steer our country in the right direction. But it's much more important to look towards the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom that, or the, the country that we live in here alone. When you understand that that sovereign power of God is 100% sure over his kingdom, and when he invites us into his kingdom through his son, and the, excuse me, the sacrifice that he has done for us, all the other kingdoms kind of fall away. We can, we can certainly stand in his kingdom knowing that he looks upon those who are looking towards him for his loving kindness, that we are protected by his shield and his fortress, that he preserves us. You know, we look at our lives a, a short period of time and we say, oh, I hope I live a long period of time. But yet it doesn't matter because when you're in his kingdom, that kingdom is eternal. Whether we are breathing here or living in his presence. Um, it goes much more deeper than just the, the surface of everyday life that we look about in our country. That we need to be able to see ourselves as in a kingdom that stands forever. On a sure foundation that can't be altered with an election. Well, no, I should correct that. We are elected into that kingdom as one who's sovereign grace. Um, uh, But yet it is all in God's hands and that we praise our Lord for. Like in the beginning of this psalm, sing for joy in the Lord and to give thanks and to sing praises. And that's what we have 
that sure assurance through his word, through his promises to us. Psalm 33. Thank you. Give of your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle for truth. Jesus has set the example. Dauntless was he young and brave. Give him your loyal devotion. Give him the best that back into our thinking through scripture. If you remember, we had started six months back. We started in Genesis and I said we were going to go through this Bible. We were going to get through it. 
Obviously, I took a two-week hiatus and brought us into a bunch of other passages um, two weeks before. Um, But today, I want to begin bringing us into the book of Leviticus. Humbling. Scary book. So uh, I have a curiosity, and it's going to sound strange, but I promise it'll all make sense at the end of the sermon. So uh, Aaron, what's your favorite smell? Lavender. Lavender. Anybody else? Favorite smells? Okay, fresh cut grass. Rain hitting the pavement. I like the laundry scent, right? That, that laundry, you know, stand by the vent when the laundry's going. You know? um, so the next question I want to ask you then is now I want you to think about this. You don't have to necessarily answer. But I want you to think, how does your favorite smell make you feel? Right? Like what, what sort of emotion does it bring? Does it make you feel at peace? Does it make you feel happy? Maybe it makes you smile. Happy? Calm? Right? Okay, good. So these are the things I want you to be thinking about. I want you to remember that as we go through the message this morning. So the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, the name itself means the priestly rules or the priestly law, right? Or the law to the priests. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Hebrew name. This morning I played around with it. It's like Vavikira, you know, something of that matter. Again, the Hebrew names for the books of the Bible is interesting. It's usually the two to three first words of the book. So for Leviticus, it would actually be he called. That's the name of the book actually in the Hebrew. He called because you see in those first couple... uh, First couple words of Leviticus, he called out. Matter of fact, we're going to be looking there. If you'd like to turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Then the Lord called to Moses. So the name of that book is Then the Lord Called. That's the name of the book of Leviticus. And this book is lengthy. Um, Again, you you even read the Jewish parshots. And even the rabbis are afraid to enter into getting into the book of Leviticus. Because there's a lot of stuff here. It's a lot of sacrifices, very holy things. You might say that there's details in the book of Leviticus that are holy and most holy. Uh, And um, again, a lot of laws. It's usually the book that most people, if they're going to begin reading through the Bible, they drop off here. This is where they stop reading. That was too much, too many laws, too many rules. A few years ago, I had preached through the entire book of Leviticus in one sermon. I even made a joke about it last night in my social media. They were like, one sermon? Geez, how do you cover the book of Leviticus in one sermon? Surely it was an overview. I had demonstrated that when we look at the book of Leviticus, we are learning how God gave the Israelites proper religion, how they should worship him, how they should come before him. It is interesting that, we are enter- that as we are entering the book, to think that we're thinking through the scriptures of Leviticus as we fall back, right? That's our, today we fell back, we had that extra hour. And uh, we also, we find ourselves in the last two months of the year. Why is that interesting? Well, the concept of putting our clocks back, now you have to help me here. The concept of putting our clocks back, does it give us an extra hour of daylight or does it remove an hour of daylight? We get an extra hour. It replaces it from one end of the day to the other end of the day. That's why I was confused. It makes sense. Good. So it's safe to say that me not understanding it is kind of okay as I'm gathering from our... uh, Good, okay. Um, Okay. Now you're talking numbers, Edward. Really? We're going to do math? (laughs) Right. Okay, so yeah, because it brings us back to the one... Yeah, I get it. So either way, I found it interesting because this is a time where we're trying to get more daylight hours or we're trying to lose it, we're losing an hour, whatever it is. It should charge us to redeem the time, right? Scriptures remind us to redeem the time no matter what. And then as we move into the end of the year, 
we should be reassessing proper religion. Again, we know what the book of James tells us, what true and undefiled religion is, right? It's giving to the needy and those things. The book of Leviticus brings us into the more spiritual nature of true religion. How should we approach God? What is God saying and what does he desire? What did he say about what he desires? And that's what I want us to consider this morning. And that's what we're going to consider as we look at the book of Leviticus. It tells us about what God wants and how he desires it. And ultimately, what is he saying to us? So looking at this first verse here. And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock or the flock. He spoke to him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, is what the King James Version says. And I thought that was interesting because I said that God speaks to people from many different places in Scripture. And it's important to know where he's speaking from and what he's ultimately saying in that, that scene. For example, we see the Lord speak in the garden. Right? He talks to Adam. Adam, you are not to eat of the tree. We see the Lord thunders his voice. Adam, where are you? You read that story again. You see a story of judgment, a story of rules. A story of blessing. God provided this blessing for Adam, brought him into the garden and gave him provision, told him to walk worthy. That is the challenge that we get from when the Lord spoke in the garden. It's he gives us provision and he wants us to walk worthy. So then the Lord spoke at the mountain. We know the Lord spoke at Mount Sinai. We just finished going through Exodus. The Lord spoke at Mount Sinai and he gave a law. Do this. If you do this, you shall live. If you don't do this, you will die. So the Lord spoke at the mountain, Mount Sinai, to give the law. Here the Lord speaks through the tabernacle, and now he's going to, he's continuing the law, right? Because again, the book, one of the things I thought was interesting from commentaries is that the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew actually begins with the word end. It's connected to the book of Exodus. It's end. You don't begin a sentence with the word A-N-D, end. Obviously, it means it's attached to something else. The first five books of your Bible are all attached. They're the Torah, right? There's these five books of Moses, the law. And they're all attached to each other. So what we're seeing in Leviticus, it's a filling in of the details that come after Exodus. Exodus, we've seen the Lord thundered from this mountain, gave the people the law. Now he's speaking out of the tabernacle that that law had told them to erect. And now he's, giving, he's filling them up with spiritual wisdom. And then we see the Lord spoke in and through the temple, right, which was further illustrating the details of the law. And then, ultimately and prayerfully, we all know and we're in agreement that the Lord speaks through his word. Notice I didn't use past tense for that one. The Lord speaks through his word. Jesus. I think it's important to reassess what God is saying and where he's saying it and to be honest with that as we go through scripture. So here, what we're talking about in the book of Leviticus is the Lord's voice coming from the tabernacle. He's now giving Moses wisdom as to how the people are to approach him. One commentary I had read, they said the five primary offerings under Moses' law that are explained in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 should be studied in connection with the book of Hebrews. And we're going to see that as we go through this study. And also, you'll see it on the back of your bulletin. I give you quite a bit of study there. So the Hebrew word korban, that's the word for offering that we see here. And what it means is it means a sacrifice or something sacrificial and actually is drawn from the root word to draw near. Because you draw near to the Lord with a sacrifice. You come to him with something. You approach him with something. Ultimately, we see in the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned it, uh, Hebrews 9.23 says, Christ brings a better sacrifice. So the sacrifices that we're reading about here in Leviticus 
pale in comparison to the true sacrifices we should know in Christ. The praises of fruitful lips, the sacrifice that God truly desires. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at these, well, today, just specifically chapters 1 through 3, three of the offerings that God desired. And the name of the sermon is a a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Because these three sacrifices mentioned in Leviticus chapters 1 through 3 are what is no, are what are known as a sweet smelling sacrifice. There's also the the next three that we're going to talk about, or the next uh, two are actually um, unsweet smelling sacrifices. Which I haven't got sin offering. Obviously, sin is not sweet, and um, I forget what the other offering is. Anybody? Sin offering and a guilt offering. Guilt. So guilt is never. Don't know anything sweet about guilt either. So uh, today what we're going to talk about, though, we're going to talk about three offerings. We're going to talk about the burnt offering, the meat offering, and the peace offering. Okay, those are going to be three. Those are sweet, right? I mean, burnt, burnt is your burning things. You think of incense. They smell pretty. Uh, Meat, I learned something interesting here is the meat offering is not meat. It's actually food. It's a food offering. We'll see that here in a moment. And... So obviously, burning meat doesn't really, sometimes, you know, if you're in Memphis, Tennessee, burning meat might be a good idea. Um, sometimes I don't know that I think that's a good thing. And when I picture the Jewish rituals, it doesn't really seem like burning animals was a good smell. So God loved it. I don't know that I would. Um, and then peace. Of course, peace is a beautiful thing. That's a sweet smell, right? See peace among brothers and sisters, to see peace in your families. So those are the things that I want to talk to us about this morning. So a sweet-smelling sacrifice. As you'll notice in your bulletin, I gave you every verse that that shows up in, right, on the back of your bulletin, a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Uh, obviously, it shows up a lot in the first couple chapters of Leviticus. And these sweet-smelling sacrifices are found all throughout Scripture. I have been known to say I am a scent-oriented person. And sure enough, today's sermon illustrates that we worship a scent-oriented God, a God that desires a sweet smell. I thought it was interesting. Oriented means to position or to align with, right? To be oriented with something. So our goal is to be oriented with the sweet smell. We want to be the people of a sweet smell to the Lord's glory. Be a people of good scent. So when we look at other areas of scripture, and I spoke last Thursday about narrative theology, so I thought it was fitting that my message this morning would also incorporate that. Um, when you look through the scriptures of this sweet smell, you see it all throughout the scriptures, ultimately from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. And I'm going to give you a couple. I give you the list there, um, I believe. Yes, I give you the list of verses there on the back of the bulletin, but I'm going to detail them for you. Genesis 8, 20 through 21. You hear about Noah. Noah gets off this boat. What is the first thing he does? He builds an altar and offers a sacrifice, and it says he offers a sacrifice of a sweet smell to the Lord. So Noah knew something about this sweet smell. Exodus chapter 29, verse 18, when they consecrate priests, the next thing they would be required to do, those priests, would be to offer up a peace offering, a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. In Leviticus 26, 31, when the people were chastised for their disobedience, listen to what the Lord says to them. I will not smell the savor of your sweet odors. You see, that's the punishment. I will not even, so you're, obviously what we're going to know by the end of this sermon is, well then what is our sweet odor? What is it that we're lifting up to God? And perfectly some of you already know. So it's a punishment, a chastisement to be be told by the Lord, I will not smell your sweet odors. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 41, when we read about the restoration of Israel, right? Because we know that 
after we follow that story of the law, right, the, the first five books, and we get into Joshua, you get into Kings, you see Israel does not walk worthy of offering a sweet sacrifice to God. They do not live as the people that God would have them to live as, which I just gave up the secret, right? There it is. To live as the people that the Lord would desire. To be a people that worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Israel did not walk in that. And therefore, by the time you find yourself to the major prophets, right? You get to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20, verse 41. God is now promising to one day restore them. And this is what he says. I will then accept your sweet savor when I bring you out from among the nations. You see, so the sweet savor thing is is all throughout the scriptures. I had to think earlier today. I said, do I want to use the word savor, which I don't like because it sounds too close to savior and that, you know, we know my pronunciation sometimes can be a bit off. So uh, I didn't know if I wanted to use that or aroma or odor. So again, hopefully you'll bear with me. And if I say the word savor wrong, forgive me. So uh, in 2 Corinthians, after Exodus chapter, Ezekiel chapter 20, the next time we read about this sweet savior, save, see, did it. The sweet aroma is uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And I paraphrase, there is triumph in Christ. us in every place for we are unto God a sweet aroma in Christ they're going about making known the gospel in that first century and obviously there were some that were not listening to that wisdom those that were two fourteen through 16 in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 2, it says Christ gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma. Christ is that sacrifice. Philippians 4, 18, and I paraphrase, the thing sent from you an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then the last one in the book of Revelation, see, I told you, it's all throughout the scriptures. Book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8. The angel appears, and this angel is carrying a golden vial full of odors. And it says, which are, and it gives you, right there, it tells you what it is. Which are the prayers of the saints. So we already prayed. We got the one sweet-smelling aroma going up. Perfectly, we've prepared our hearts to be here, and you've lifted up praise, so you've already prepared that as well. So, so far, we're doing really good on lifting up a sweet aroma to God this morning. I want to equip us to keep doing it every day, throughout our week, throughout our lives. So let's talk about these three offerings, because in looking at these three offerings, we're not only going to understand them as per the book of Leviticus, but we're also going to understand them as per our lives. What does all of this have to do with my life? So a burnt offering, which is mentioned in Leviticus 1, as well as in Leviticus 6 and 8. Again, I didn't want to drag you through all of that today, so what I did was that's why I prepared the back of your bulletin for further study. All these cross-references I'll make this morning, every Bible verse I'll bring up is on the back of your bulletin just to let you know. So if I, slow, if I go too fast, please just remember, you can go home and you can slow it down. Maybe you can even play the podcast and you can go through the notes again. So this burnt offering. The burnt offering was an offering of adoration. It was an offering of coming to God with devotion. It was the first one that you must offer up. Before you were to do any other offering, you must lift up a burnt offering. So you must come to the Lord with adoration, devotion, and complete surrender. Another interesting thing about the burnt offering is it's an offering that was available every day. Because again, we should all know, we should be approaching the Lord with adoration, devotion, and complete surrender surrender every day. One commentary noted, the animal's death typifies Christ's death. The bloodshed points to the atonement. 
And the smoke that would ascend from the burnt offering typifies the resurrection. Right? It would ascend up. Matter of fact, the burnt offering in the Hebrew is called the halah, that which ascends. It is also known as the ascending offering, that which goes up to God. So is it a surprise that when we follow that understanding throughout the scriptures, that Jesus is revealed to be the burnt offering? It shouldn't be a surprise to us. Jesus is the burnt offering. You see in Leviticus 1.4, the need for atonement. Sure enough, in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, Jesus Christ is our atonement and our propitiation. In Leviticus 1.11, I thought this was rather interesting, that the sacrifice has to be done north of the tabernacle. Sure enough, Jesus Christ was crucified north of the temple, Golgotha. Interesting. You see that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 33. Leviticus 1.5, he shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron, Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is the doorway of the tent of meeting. Again, this is the very, this offering is your entrance into the presence of God. And sure enough, 1 Peter 1.2 talks about the sanctification by the Spirit to the obedience and the sprinkling of Christ's blood, which ultimately is a picture of grace. It's a picture of God showing his grace through giving up the giving of the spirit and the giving of Christ's blood, the letting of Christ's blood, if you will. So what is our application? How do we, when we look at this, Levitic, this burnt offering, what do we get from it? And if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You know, the word bodies here is not talking about our individual bodies, surprise, surprise. It's actually speaking about the local assemblies, that each local assembly should be submitted to the Lord, because again, they called the assembly the body, right? The body of Christ. Each local assembly should be submitted to the Lord, offering a living and holy sacrifice and not being conformed to the wisdom of this world. I, I appreciated Pastor Steve's exhortation this morning in regards to our nation and then our holy nation, right? Our identity as Christians. And again, that remind, this text reminds me of that because we are not to be conformed to the ways of this world. Again, we should be praying for our country. We should be praying for our president. We should be praying for peaceful elections. But that's not where our identity is found. We know that we have been transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we are in a new kingdom. We have been transformed from this earthly kingdom into a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly identity, a citizenship that is in heaven. That is our identity. That's where we can find our identity. So when we remind ourselves of that, that is Pastor Steve's exhortation was our burnt offering, our walking worthy of being a burnt offering this morning. That it was what reminds us of our adoration, our devotion, and our complete surrender, not to a kingdom of this world, but to the kingdom of God. The way that we walk worthy of a burnt offering is to remind ourselves that we are a people that have been transformed. We are not a people that are to be conformed to the ways of this world. We are not a people of anxiety, of frustration, of stress, of everything you see in the news. That's not walking worthy of being a burnt offering. So now that I've exhorted you in that regard, let's talk about a meat offering, which again I mentioned is food, not actual meat. 
This offering would require oil and frankincense to be put upon it before it was lifted up. This offering would represent God's goodness and his provision. Sure enough, the New Testament application of this would be Jesus Christ as the bread that came from heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. John chapter 6, verse 48. I find it interesting that this meat offering, which if we're saying it's Jesus Christ as the bread of life, it had to be accompanied by oil. What is oil synonymous with in Scripture? The Spirit. Sure enough, Jesus says, I must go so that the Spirit will come. You see, there's, I'm a Trinitarian, just secrets out. Um, You know, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as God. So uh, for me, I understand that the Father did a work. He sent the Son to do a work. And sure enough, because that Son was the meat offering, therefore the oil must be supplied, the Spirit of God. You see this comparison in Leviticus 2, 1 through 2, and you can correlate that with Hebrews 9, 14. Another interesting thing is that this, this food offering here had to be sprinkled with salt. And sure enough, in the New Testament, we hear a lot about salt. We see that Jesus Christ says, we are the salt of the world, the salt of the earth. Also in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, it says that our speech must be seasoned with salt. Because salt, again, is a purifying thing. So we need the oil and we need the salt. You need the oil, which will teach you in truth, lead you in truth, the spirit, and the salt that will purify. will do the work of purifying and also the work of endurance. I had learned a while back that uh, one of the ways they used to burn their fires was they would take the dung and they would mix salt into it and then they would light it on fire and it would make, the, it'd make it burn longer. So you think about salt representing endurance. I've never done that, so if you, know, you don't understand how it works, Sorry. Um, however, maybe I'll try it later. Um, you know, so, uh, but that's, you know, again, salt is something that we see in scripture that will sustain you, right? It, it seasons your food better. It's, it's something that we should have in our lives. We should have the oil and the salt in our lives. So when I got to thinking, I said, what would be the application? Where do I see application of this in scripture? And I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 1. Here in Luke 1, what I just want to read to you is Mary's song. And I want you to see her song, her life, her witness as the meat offering. Starting at verse 46. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, that's going to be page 1019. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Remember I told you this offering represents God's goodness and provision. For he has had regard, again verse 48, for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So Mary... The Spirit causes her to pray, causes her to praise God. 
I also thought of Romans chapter 8 where it talks about the Spirit makes intercession and groans for us when we might not have the words to say. That is the Lord's goodness and provision. When we lift up praise by way of the Spirit, which Hebrews 13 points out, that you know that's the sacrifice that the Lord desires, that is us walking worthy of giving that meat offering to God. So if the burnt offering is our knowing that we're transformed from the, you know, by the renewing of our mind, the meat offering is actually our lifting up his praise, exalting him, thanking him for the goodness and provision he has offered. And then the peace offering. The peace offering is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 3 as well as Leviticus chapter 7. And of course, this represents reconciliation, communion with God, which we're going to celebrate here in a moment. In Luke chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the proclamation when Christ was born was, Glory to God in the highest, peace and goodwill toward all men. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is our peace. If you need a question on what the peace offering is, there it is. He who is our peace, paraphrasing, He broke down the dividing wall, which was the law, so as making one new man and thus bringing peace. The body of Christ. Colossians 1.20 reminds us that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross, reconciling all things to himself to present you, his church, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. So therefore, if we're going to walk worthy of giving a peace offering to our God, it should be very clear from that last verse I just mentioned that we would be a people. We would be the one new man giving glory to God, declaring peace and goodwill toward all men, and thus walking worthy of being made holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. You notice it doesn't say we make ourselves holy, blameable, and unreprovable in his sight. He makes us holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. So therefore, we must be a people of reconciliation and communion with God and with others. So the conclusion, how would I conclude this message? Well, this, everything I put before you this morning, these offerings, walking worthy of these offerings, is our knowledge, the knowledge that we have on how God is speaking and what pleases him. God has spoken. It's in his word. We don't need new revelation. We don't need to seek what does God want from us today. He's told us what he wants. And he's told us what pleases him. You remember your favorite, your favorite smell? Remember your thoughts? Don't you want to make God feel like that? Don't you, you know, you feel joyful when you, you feel your favorite smells, you're calm. Surely you want to calm a God of wrath, right? I, I know I do. Um, uh, thank God Jesus' sacrifice calmed it enough so we don't have to worry about it. But again, you want God to be happy. You want God, all the things we shared. We want God to feel that way. I know it's a very natural human thing, but I know from the best of my ability that I want God to, the moments that I feel good, I want to think, how do I make my God feel like that? How do I make my God feel when I feel overjoyed at the things I've learned about him? How do I remind him of that? How do I bring that back to him and make him feel overjoyed? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, I told you that it says that, that those good-smelling odors is the prayers of the saints. And sure enough, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16, we read about the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. And then it continues there. It says, to do good and forget not. That's all of these sacrifices put together, is our prayers, our praise to do good and forget not. That's what we need to be doing as the people of God. Each sacrifice 
Uh, the concepts apply to our lives in one, chapters 1 through 3. We can look at that and don't have to get bogged down. You know, I, when I think of the book of Leviticus, I think of a lot of these funny books like The Year of Living Biblically. If anybody's ever read that. You know, the guy that tried to live by the Bible 100%, you know, all these weird laws. He even stoned adulterers in, uh, in Central Park by throwing pebbles at their shoe. Um, that was one of my favorites. Um, so, um, but again, I think of that. And then I think of the man that wrote, uh, I think it was... Uh, Dobson, I forget his first name. He had wrote a book, uh, The Year of Living Like Jesus, and he used the very first century context. So, you know, sandals, the whole thing. And um, so when I look at the book of Leviticus, I always think of that. I think of these silly laws, these silly rituals. However, I'm hoping that this morning I put before us a very applicational, appropriately applicational perspective. That we don't need to start going in your backyard and digging up dung and trying to figure out how to mix salt with it so you can make a, a good offering, a sweet smelling odor to the Lord. Sweet smelling odor. Um, you know, again, we know how we shall be the sweet-smelling odor. In Hebrews 8, 6, I mentioned before that it says in Hebrews 9 that we have better sacrifices through Christ. Sure enough, in Hebrews 8, 6, it says we have better promises. So not only do we have the better sacrifices, we have better promises. And what I'd like to do is conclude with some thoughts from Joseph Prince, a preacher that I've been listening to lately and uh, learning from. And what he said about Leviticus chapter 1 and how we can look at each one of these these uh, sacrifices, and ultimately how those details apply to us. In the Old Testament times, when a burnt offering is killed, its head is severed, the fat is removed, and the entrails and legs were washed. I thought that was so weird when I was reading through Leviticus 1-3. through It's like, take the legs and wash them in the basin. Uh, some strange rituals. Then, after you do that, everything is placed on an altar and burnt, and the sacrifice is therefore a sweet aroma to God. Well, let's talk about the head first. The head of the sacrificed animal speaks of the mind of Christ offered as a covering for our minds. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that we have the mind of Christ. Because again, we all know the real battle, right? Hopefully we all know the real battle, that carnal mind. So we need a new mind. We need the mind of Christ. This means that although our minds are often clouded with unbelief, and these are not my words, borrowing them, uh, worries, foolishness, filth in human reasoning, God treats us as, as if we have the mind of Christ without wrong or displeasing thoughts, bringing pleasure to him like a sweet aroma. God looks at us through Jesus Christ. He sees Christ's mind. He sees us when we're submitted to Christ and living out that mind. That's what he sees. He doesn't see your, you know, because again, I know we can all get there, right? We can find, oh, does God really know what's really going on in my mind? No. God looks at Jesus. If you're in Christ, he looks to Jesus. And he sees you. You're in Jesus. That's your identity. So let's talk about the fat of the animal. The fat of the animal actually spoke of the riches of Christ. My brother wouldn't like this very much. We have a lot of arguments over the best piece of steak, right? Which one tastes better? So the fat of the animal speaks of the riches of Christ, his best. For God equates the fat of something with the best of that entity. And the proof text would be Genesis 45, verse 18. Show my brother that later. The fat of the burnt sacrifice speaks of Jesus giving us his riches, giving us his provision, giving us the opportunity to approach his throne, to have communion with him which again, we will celebrate, reminding myself. So God does not see us in our lack, but in the riches and the excellence of Jesus. Again, a sweet-smelling aroma. The entrails or intestines speak of the motivations and feelings and affections and desires of Christ. We oftentimes feel fearful, anxious, stressed out, or angry, and it affects our stomach and our intestines. Interesting correlation there. But God sees only Jesus' feelings and desires, which are always pure, beautiful, and acceptable to him. Again, a sweet aroma. 
And what this is supposed to be reminding us is it's not about your works and about you doing the best you can to offer up a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It's about finding your identity in Jesus Christ, who is the sweet-smelling aroma of God. And then lastly, the legs. The legs refer to Jesus' perfect walk. You ever feel like your legs are leading you the wrong way? Well, if we're in Christ, we share in his walk. We have feet shod with the gospel. Jesus, his perfect, was, his perfect walk was the power to serve and obey the Father, imputed to our weak and faltering walk. And the fact that they are washed away shows that even our crooked walk has been cleansed. Beloved, God does not see your foolish mind, your weak nature, your inadequate feelings, or faulty walk. Instead, he sees you perfect in his Son, who gave himself up for you as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. And so, yes, we move into our Lord's Supper celebration this morning, not declaring our weaknesses nor his death. This is not a table of death here. This is a table of power. We declare his power in us as a perfected body of Christ, and we celebrate his life being present here with us when we approach this table. We celebrate the one new man. So please join me in prayer before we approach that celebration. Mighty God, we do indeed thank you, Lord, that you provided the sacrifice so that we may participate in the celebration. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the admonishments we see here in Scripture, Lord, regarding the sacrifices that you desire. And as particular as they are in the book of Leviticus, Lord, would you lead us to be mindful of that, of how you truly do desire a sweet-smelling aroma, a sweet-smelling aroma that you have made clear on what it must be. Not our own efforts, not our own works, but Jesus, Lord, that we may have that one word, Jesus, his blood and his flesh, being a sufficient sacrifice for your glory. Thank you for allowing us to find our identity in him. Remind us of that as we celebrate this Lord's table this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.